I am Kelly Forden, and I'm here today with Robin Luce Martin, and we're going to do something different today. We're going to be talking about two of her stories, 1969 and Through the Hole, and both are available on my website, so it would be great if you guys read the stories first before you listen to our discussion. Hi, Robin. Hi. Great to have you here. Yes, thank you so much for doing this, Kelly. I'm excited. Yeah, I am too. We have been friends since 2008, and it's just a thrill to be able to talk about your amazing stories. Okay, so I'm going to start with 1969, which was first published in the New Orleans Review, but it's also won a few awards, I believe. And I just wanted to hear a little bit about the genesis of the story. This was probably uh, the first story or piece of a story that I attempted. Um, I didn't start writing till I was in my early 40s. And um, I think the story came from a time in my life, my personal life, when I had felt a great deal of power as a uh, 12-year-old girl. And then that was mitigated by the fact that the Vietnam War was going on and I daily was asking God or wishing or um, raging, how can this keep happening? I had friends who died. I, I It just was my coming of age time. And uh, as I looked back, when I started to write, I thought about um, just about that power that I felt and where it came from and what motivated it. And so I made this story about a girl who has light coming out of her back and that light can impact people. And in the story, it's this boyfriend who's in in those terms that day, he would be called a hoodlum. So it's a little old fashioned in that way. But anyway, I wanted to see what would happen in a story. And then I guess what was working in my mind was the combining it with Vietnam. And I was trying to imagine a girl that same age where her power came from. So I did a lot of reading and research and I learned about this girl who became a heroine in, in Vietnam. And I started writing about the two of them. And that went on and on for years. But the this part, the story that was published is just in that opening with, with the girl and her boyfriend and the way that Vietnam um, came into it was that the, this is a spoiler, but the, well, they're supposed to have read it. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, the girl, um, as you've read or will read um, her friend, her friend's mother was a go-go dancer, and then she went to Vietnam with Bob Hope. So, and then the, the story goes on to uh, peripherally to tell that that angle of the of what happened, and that woman ends up killing herself. So that's a turning point in in the story. So that was the genesis. I think just I was I was starting to write, and I just had this whole all these thoughts about that time in my life. And I was already in my early forties. And so 
I was looking back and that's what came up. And so it starts with, I want to get to the light in her back because that's just amazing, that part of it. But this, I'll just start with structure. The story starts with Tom Tomlin and then it goes to Aggie Wells POV and then it ends with Tom again. Was that a structure you started with or how did the story evolve to that? Because we spend a lot of time with Aggie in the middle. I think it's, um, I don't think at the time I understood a lot about fiction structure or, and I, I probably still don't. I, it's, it's more, um, I think it's from my background as in acting and in theater. So I, I tend to, everything tends to come in parts. So that was a three part story, <laughs> like um, as if an act. And so there's this introduction and this setting of the location and the setup of the, the different um, characters, personalities and voices. And then this middle section, and usually this is the same in uh, longer works that I've done, mm-hmm. has this uh, ramification of this initial, the initial meeting or voice or something that happens. And then the end is shorter. So it's, I don't know, I think it comes from theater. I'm, it's not a, it's it's not that I outline it or say, oh, this many words per section, but that's how things seem to come out in probably in my conversations, probably in all my personal relationships. It's that's very cool. Rhythm. uh, Yeah, I have. Okay. So in the first section, Tom says, um, my, my mother had a way with slamming doors. And then he goes on to say that his mother once slammed a blue jay in a door and decapitated it. And he had been fascinated with the blue jay. And then that was that. And it was so violent. Um, mm-hmm. And it was so evocative. It's just a stunning moment. And I wondered what that moment meant for you as the writer. Well, I think I was just uh, at that moment wanting to. Um, in a very short amount of space, cast this sense of what it was like growing up in that particular location, how everything looked really the same and there was tract houses and and yet, and it appears peaceful, it's Los Angeles, there's so much sunshine. And yet in every backyard and in this backyard in particular, there's, um, a possibility for this eruption of violence. And I think I felt that because um, it's just, it seemed to always be brewing. It seemed, it was very hard at that, as I grew up at the, that age, 15, 16, to, to realize how much violence there was going on. I think um, in that area, that same neighborhood, my uh, best friend from junior high school, we once spent the evening sitting on her roof watching Watts burn. And we could see it in the, in the distance. Uh, Watts is right. For right. people who don't know, uh, the, it was the Los Angeles 
riots and riots. They called them riots, but and they called them the revolution. But anyway, it was just. And then at the same time, there's all there's all the Hollywood and music references. So it's just this. And I think with I, I felt like that just captured this way that the adults were moving through a kind of um, idyllic looking life, but had this edginess that came out in very um, bursts of, I don't want to say craziness, but bursts of expression that were Mm -hmm. directed outward rather than inward. So. Well, I think the description of his mother um, and her state of mind, when you say um, the smell of damp clothes and lint, dead daisies in a vase on the windowsill, the calendar on February, though it was September, my dad's rifle against, I'm sorry, this is Tom's mom. I didn't mean to yeah. start again. <laughs> sorry, that you convey uh, Tom's mother's state of mind so well with the with these images. The smell of damp clothes and lint dead daisies in a vase on the windowsill, the calendar on February, though it was September, my dad's rifle against the wall, nothing undid that blue jay. I mean, all of those things are signaling his mother is not in a great state. I mean, his life, therefore, (laughs) is not in a great state. And she's always in the the housecoat too, right? The tan. Mm -hmm. Well, later in the story, you learn that his brother, um, you know, goes to Vietnam. Right, right. So she's all these things are happening at once. Concurrently. Yeah. But there you just get the sense that life has stopped. She doesn't care. She decapitates the Blue Jay. Things are falling apart. And then we move on to um, Aggie's section. And she has this light emanating from her back. And is one of her feelings that she can change him and make him a better person? Yes, yes. yes. she yeah, definitely turn- believes that she can calm him down. She can influence him. She can change the world. She definitely has that kind of a a feeling. Okay, what? Yeah. How, how did you come up with the part about Father O'Donnell? <laughs> and uh, uh, well, that um, is part. That was just part of. Um, in, in the neighborhood where I grew up, there's a, an enormous church that I frequented. And um, it, I think it's in the story also, Annette Funicello went there and she was at the time in the uh, Mickey Mouse Club. And so it was a place of, you know, where all my neighbors, most of them were Catholic, they all went to church. But it also was this part of this fantasy world that exists as you're growing up in LA at, you know, where there's no um, division between movie stars and regular people. We're all just wandering around there. (laughs) And sometimes, I mean, and, and it's true, like literally you're wandering around. I mean, you see them all. Right. Uh, But father O'Donnell was there. I mean, so the, interesting thing is he takes you know this young girl with all of her innocence goes in there and says can you see it you know (laughs) yes she wants to get some sort of authoritative yes this is real that you have this power and she doesn't really have she's she's someone who's is 
feels there is a God, this is in the story, but her mother and her father would not, they're secular. They would not, they would think she was crazy. And her friend's mother, though she plays the organ in the church, tells her that God is dead. So she's just looking for an authority that can validate what she's feeling. And of course, her boyfriend goes along with it, but there isn't a real, you know, sense of him changing or believing her. Right. He's just kind of putting up with it and he's got other things on his mind. So tell me a little bit about the movie. The, I was going to look up the film Cat Baloo <laughs> with Jane oh, Fonda and Lee Martin, but what's... I don't think the the movie's not so... Uh, the content of the movie is not that um, uh, central to why I chose it. It just was that... It's a movie of that time. Uh-huh. And it would play, you know, the movies then could play for months you know, now they're just out for a weekend, right. <laughs> two weekends. So this was that kind of um, just part of the time that this, and and that you would go as a teenager to see this same movie over and over and over again, because that was a place of privacy. You could do whatever you wanted in the movie theater. Right. So the idea of movie magic, that in the movies, anything could happen, I think in at this time in that in this place for these kids that that also happened inside the movie theater so you brought what was movie magic into your life by you know all this sexual exploring and hanging out and just doing whatever you wanted inside the movie theater and they were they were huge movie theaters with balconies and yeah so It was an escape. Yeah. Okay. Well, what about Claire and her mom? Her mother had been a Brett girl and was gorgeous and she always wears black and she has the breakdown every Sunday morning in the bottle room. And I was trying to think of like, was that like the old, you know, when people would have bars in their house and then they'd have all the bottles behind the bar. Is that kind of what that was? No, no, no. It was more like bottles that were beautiful. Bottles made out of very oh, like glass and glass yeah. bottles, all kinds of perfume. And uh, yeah, that should have been clearer. Sorry. That no, 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 no. It, it could have been that I just um, was envisioning what I knew <laughs> instead oh, of what the, was the, there. The whiskey closet. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> the Irish, the Irish whiskey drinkers. Yeah. No, this was more um, like a a bottle room with I, I should but they never clear. but they never seem to go away like she, she no she, she keeps replenishes re- them so yeah I could see where you would think oh it's whiskey bottle maybe there were a few I should have maybe no maybe it, I pro- it no I bet you anything <laughs> it was me envisioning my own past um so she goes in there and she has this breakdown every Sunday um and then unfortunately then she she dies at the end. And so she's given up on God. And well, what happens is um, the story between Tommy and Aggie, he's really wanting to be sexual, fully sexual with her. And she keeps putting him off and they, and then they race up to the top of this mountain where they always hang out. And her mother has, um, or Claire's mother has parked a Thunderbird up there. 
it's on top of the mountain in Los Angeles. So the setting is very much part of the the picture. And he he's they make a bet if whoever gets there first, if he gets there, but she gets a head start, they're gonna have sex that night. And he they get to the top, and instead of instantly doing this, he turns the headlights on and she takes off her top and he's watching her and it's you know it's very it's innocent but it's also erotic and then he goes to the car they're going to go in the car and he finds he finds her the mother her name's Raquel dead she's killed herself and she's in the front seat and so he you know backs away and turns around and he's hysterical and grabs Aggie and they run down the mountain and this is a story in the novel then the character of Raquel is is explored more and you learn that she had been having an affair with Tommy. Well, the way the novel goes is is it does continue in the different POVs, but you get, right. um, and so you get everybody's POV. Many, it's the most amazing novel, which needs a publisher. <laughs> it's amazing. So anyway, okay, well, we won't ruin that, you know, when people read yes. the novel. Okay, yeah. Thanks. So I guess, well, one thing I like to ask for other writers, and then we'll move on to through the whole is um, how did that ending of that particular story come to you? And what did it signify for you when they are um, beating the dead horses, you know, in the last of Tom's okay. section, so the, Tommy's section. Yeah. It goes back to the Tom section and mm-hmm. they are no longer a- after this, death, things devolve, and they're no longer a couple. Then it cuts forward to um, right right before the end of high school. And so thinking about where do these two sensibilities go during this time, he's become much more um, political in the sense of he no longer, you know, hates this, this group or that group or this group. He's very involved in who has who has money and who doesn't have money and he he goes on this last sort of trip through California surfing he's always been a surfer and his brother is sending him his letters he's you know afraid his brother's going to die and his he's going to go to Tulane he's going to be leaving Los Angeles he, and as they're driving they see this horse and i think i think the idea came to me from my many drives up and down the coast of inward and and the coast of California, just these things that come into your head when you're driving. And I remembered this image from about 20 years before I wrote the story of this beautiful horse. I I loved horses. It was so beautiful. And I pulled over and I was watching the horse and then it just came into my head where do horses go when they die? Like, how does that beauty disappear? And I think when I was writing the story, it just, I don't, you know, it just came back to me that way. And I thought, what if this horse was there? And the reason that they would beat it is this beauty that had been their lives, their their youth and their fantasy of what what would be, what would come is ending at this moment in time because they're all going to split up and they don't, they don't want it to. And the, and the world is, 
you know, in turmoil. It's all, there are all these riots and wars on television every day. So they, and they don't, they don't know what to do. And so it just made sense to me that they, it's that violence, the same as the, um, it, it also balances the, uh, the bird. So he, that his mother kills just having this brewing inside of you and not knowing what to do and coming out in this very unpredictable burst of violence. It made sense in terms of, if you want to say structure, and then also that trigger from my past of that beautiful horse. Yeah, it's a stunning, it's a stunning scene. Well, I don't want to run out of time without talking about Through the Hole, which I really want to discuss too. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of that one? So Through the Hole is a very different story. It's not part of a novel. It stands alone. And I love that it was made into a podcast. So if anyone is interested, you can hear it rather than read it. And it uh, was performed by an actress. So it's set on the Upper East Side of New York in a button store. And again, the location is so much a part of the story and sort of the location is pushing things every which way. It's funny, and the central character is trying to figure out what to do next in her life, and it's it it becomes a uh, sort of magic realism story, but it's grounded in this very day to day life within this button store that has um, very very wealthy clients, and. Uh, I wrote the story, I think I wrote it first in 1994, and I I think I have 17 different versions of it, complete versions, all, I first was in the first person, second, third, back and forth, back and forth, then I wrote it from a Button's point of view, then I wrote it from Cat's point of view, because a cat, a stray cat comes into the store and is adopted, it just went all over the place, and when I sent it, to the, um, entered it for the podcast, they wrote me back at that point, it was in the second person and said, we love this. Can you change it to the first person? (laughs) And, and then I revised it completely and I wrote it in the first person and I'm very happy with this version. And I feel like it could actually be a play I could totally see that because it's it's such an ensemble piece and it feels like you know the button store is is one of the main characters you know there's just and plus there's all of these different people in the story and so I wanted to I mean you have some amazing ways that you describe all of these different people but I felt also like the um the store itself was a metaphor for something larger. And I wondered what you were thinking about the store as a metaphor for, you know, because there are some people up on the upstairs floor, convening on the balcony, looking down at the contagion. <laughs> and then there's everyone who shops at the store. And that includes a wide swath of the city residents from movie stars to heiresses to, you know, who knows, to all people who are meticulous. I guess that's a two-part question. What were you thinking the button store was a metaphor for? And what do all these people think the buttons can do for them? I think I, I saw the button store as the, as New York City and this crossroads for every economic group. They don't 
pass in the night, they like run into each other. <laughs> so it's very much like New York in that everything is a second out of your face. You know, it's everything's very close up. So that's different than the other story, which has that spatial distance all the time of California. This is a New York story with millions of tiny little details and all these different possibilities and fabrics and ways for things to go. And it's all held together so tenuously, like a button, you know, just, I'm, I, I think I was so amazed every day that this whole thing works, that you can get up, go outside, get on the subway, and all, all this stuff is happening. And it's, it just keeps going on. And it, it seems so combustible, but it just keeps going on. So that's how that like this store and all this activity and people and points of view would is really like very much like the city. And it also had this beauty, which was treasured by both the owners, the people who worked at the store and the customers. So despite all of the raucous, insane, like out of control behavior, they all had that in common, this sense of beauty. And then an imagination because within the button world, each button had a kind of wild story to it or fantasy life to it. So all that imagination is being um, laid out and charged every day. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, I, it's incredible. I thought it could be a TV show. I thought it could be all sorts of things, but. Oh yeah. So many people and coming and going. Like, um, I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Keep going. Oh, just having, you know, looked at it again and spoken, knowing I was going to speak to you. I started to feel like I wanted to um, ha have it in print, but with some uh, photographs or some uh, visual part to it, in addition to just the printed word. Yeah, that would be amazing because I was trying to envision it. I've never been in a button store <laughs> before, but your descriptions were just so incredible. So in the end, some the main character has worn the same leather pants from November to December. And she literally climbs the ivy in the garden to get a better, I, I think I was thinking to get a better perspective on everything happening. And then she, you know, she takes off sort of in a magical realist way, flying to distant places. And then she ends up watching the button store from, a, from behind a cloud. And I just thought, I, so I guess I was wondering about her. So we know she's reading House of Mirth and she identifies with Lily Bart. Um, so I assumed she was also feeling like she was on the verge of a change like Lily Bart. Is that true? Well, I think the, the Lily Bart part is about she ends up killing herself and part of her problem is her reliance on men. So the character in this story is in that age where you're feeling you have to have a baby and she's single and the, an old boyfriend comes in. And so she's she, she keeps reading House of Mirth over and over again, kind of to, in a way, I don't, this can't be me. I have to figure something else out. 
I mean, I don't write that out literally, but I hope I conveyed her fear of becoming that. And she doesn't, she just, I think the end is, for me, it signals her only way out is her imagination. And she's got to imagine a different life and proceed from there. So that's, I I felt like it was a uh, uplifting ending. <laughs> that's what I meant. That I she, thought, I thought so too. Okay. Who are some of, because we, we don't have a ton of time, but who are some of your favorite characters in the story? I love Ivan's caricatures and Dr. Zine was a fascinating I know, character. All, I so... love all the characters. <laughs> it's so, even the, um, you know, the owners, the, uh, the, the one owner who's obsessed with money and she just can't make, you know, make sure you, you, you know how to add if it's, if it's 0.5, add it, add it, make it, make it two, make it two. You know, she, I just, they're all like so um, distinctive and uh, they're all, yeah, they're distinctive and they're beautiful and they're so flawed. And I, oh, I guess I love um, so much the one, the thinker, the one who's the playwright, who, um, yeah, the, the part when he says, uh, there's some, the phone is always ringing. And for people who don't, who haven't read the story or won't read it, the store is really tiny, really tiny and packed. So it's, it's like getting into a station wagon with your entire family every single day, all the cousins, all throughout time, all your ancestors, and you're just in there and the phone is ringing. And this character answers the phone and you just hear him saying, we don't have zippers. I'm sorry. No, we don't have zippers. Zippers. You'd have to look, go to a notion store. Notions, notions. N-O-T-I-O-N-S, notions. All right, I'll, I'll spell it again. S-T-U-P-I-D, something like that. Man. <laughs> yeah. It was just like, I wanted to get the frenzy of, this and that's New York. You see, you're just you're just here, bottled in with a zillion people <laughs> every day. I could not stop laughing about the Chanel buttons and um, the mace and the, <laughs> and the blonde. So, did something like that? I mean, where did that idea come from? Because that is so perfect. Well, I think I've. Um, I, so this, I worked in a button store. So some of this is part of that experience, but this is fiction. But the part that isn't fiction is that we did have these two women come in and they just insisted on uh, getting Chanel buttons and insisted that we were lying to them. And they did take out their mace and, and we all had to run out of the store. So that, that really did happen. <laughs> but um this is a sort of thing <laughs> with unbelievable. Very but did, did they didn't things. did they spray it or did they just take oh, it? Oh yes, out? yes. There <gasps> were times when people fought over the buttons like actually fist, you know, had fist fights. But I mean it, it's a it's a combustible situation and it's a each one of these items is very rare. So the desire to have it is intense if that's you know what you want or need for your outfit well and <laughs> so, and in a way that's so like i mean like i don't live in new york but what i imagine there's so many people with so many talents and so much 
you know, all vying for space in this amazing location and vying for success. And I don't know, it did seem yes. like a microcosm of that, you know, like. And, and so much um, individual, I mean, their individuality and, and beauty in each person, but yeah, that's how it. Yeah. Mix it all together and right. <laughs> it, it's intense. Right. You know, and this is this is it. You're you're in the you're in New York and it's you're in the right thick there. of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, let me um my last question I always ask is if is there anything about either story that you wanted to discuss that I didn't bring up? I mean, we could go on for hours, honestly. I know. I, there's I, so I, much more. There, I, could, I really, I, um, I'm so glad that you did this and that I wasn't, I can be very shy and not speak at all, but um, it, this has been easy because I'm just kind of looking out of the window. <laughs> and, you know, uh, so thanks it's, a lot, Kelly. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. It was a great thrill. Thank you, Robin.